0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Kroc Cast, a series of Peace Studies conversations convened by the croc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. I'm Laurie Nathan. I'm Director of the Mediation Program at the croc Institute and Professor of the Practice of Mediation. I'm joined today by several Notre Dame undergrad and grad students and alumni who've been instrumental in creating a new project, a web-based project at this stage, which we call accomplice. I'm going to invite them to introduce themselves and they will explain what Accomplice is all about. In essence, a project that is intended to promote a dialogue and activism around decoloniality at the University of Notre Dame. It's a very exciting new project convened in the difficult circumstances of COVID-19 where we were attempting to create a new project entirely virtually. And we now, as we move into the new era, of course, have the possibility of not only working virtually and maintaining this website, but engaging in a whole host of activist activities on campus. Let me invite our student participants in this project to introduce themselves. Let me start with Fiana Abam. And then I'll move to Liam
1: Mayer. Hi, everyone. My name is Fianna. I am a recent graduate from the Masters of Global Affairs program from the Keio School. Just graduated in May, so excited to be back and continuing to engage. I concentrated in sustainable development and minored in peace studies. Throughout my brief two year stint at Notre Dame, I had the honor and privilege of working alongside Lori as the first student program associate of the Mediation Center. And I'm a co-founder of the Accomplice Project and I'm so excited to be here and actually finally meet some of our contributors, Josie and Jack. One of the weird things about COVID is you can work alongside peers and talk about such deep things without ever having met them in person. That's kind of the COVID reality today. So I'm really excited to be here with
2: all of you.
0: Great. Thanks, Fiona. Liam.
2: Hi, everyone. My name is Liam. I am an alumnus of the University of Notre Dame. I graduated in 2018 with degrees in art history and political science. After that, I did a two-year master's program at the University of Oregon in art history, and I will be starting in the fall a PhD in art history at Temple University. My studies focus on intersections of queerness, coloniality, and Catholicism in contemporary Latin American art. And over the this past year, I've been very fortunate to be working on the Accomplice Project with Fiona as a co-founder. It's been a wonderful year. And I was just thinking about almost a calendar year ago today was when Elizabeth Boyle and I, who's one of the other fantastic people involved in this project, were sitting having dinner and go, oh, she said, Oh my God, I know this great person. You need to check out Fiona. She's fantastic and got the ball rolling on this whole thing. So uh yeah, it's exciting to be here a year later and seeing everything that's happened and able to reflect on all the work that we've done.
0: Thank you, Liam. I can't wait to read your PhD one day. Sounds absolutely fascinating. (laughs) Josie.
3: Hi, everyone. My name is Josie, and I'm a senior political science, international peace studies major at Notre Dame. And I'm so excited to have made a contribution to ACCOMPLICE and to be here today with you all to discuss it.
4: Thank you. Jack. Hey, everyone. I'm a rising senior as well in political science. And I'm also extremely excited to talk about my piece with an accomplice. And I'm also a member of the Cherokee Nation Adopted Shawnee. And I'm really excited to talk about Native American affairs on campus and decolonization.
0: Great. Now is the time. Fiona, let's get into the substance. So Fiona, tell us, what is accomplice? Give us a basic description of the project. And then tell us something about the motivation for setting it up.
1: Sure. So in terms of a basic description, I guess I could break it down into maybe three frameworks of understanding accomplice. It's really tough to describe exactly and pinpoint what accomplice is because the methodology of decolonization, as we might know, is extremely complex. So in terms of accomplice as a platform, we didn't quite make it into a publication or a magazine per se. It's rather currently in in its form, it is a web platform. And we seek contributions from students, faculty, staff at Notre Dame, and also from the larger community in South Bend, which includes the Pokegan Band, indigenous folks with whom Notre Dame necessarily has intertwined relations with. And through various Essays, it could be in a media form like what Josie provided in, in the form of a documentary. We've worked with a student who's interested in promoting a re envisioning of the Snipe Museum's Latin America section, for example, just various creative means of engaging with and interrogating the ways that Notre Dame as an institution throughout history and in present day contemplates, engages with, etc., its colonial history in hopes of one day establishing what it might actually mean to be a decolonized institution. So I think what I really wanted to highlight is not only is this web platform in, in essence a portal for publications, but it also is attempting to establish a methodology towards decolonization. And one of the key frameworks that we've been utilizing for the Accomplice Project is a piece called Decolonization is Not a Metaphor by Tuck and Yang. And what we envision for Accomplice is not only do we talk about and engage in dialogue around what it might mean to decolonize Notre Dame, but to actually leverage this platform to see material consequences and transformation of this institution towards decolonization.
0: Great. Thank you, Fianna. Liam, as the other co-founder of the project, what do you hope to achieve? And how is the project structured at this stage?
2: Yeah, so our large overarching goal is material reparations, which is something Fiona and I talked about a lot throughout this entire project and used that phrase specifically as this sort of centering phrase whenever we were working or wondering, okay, what direction is this going? And we always asked ourselves, you know, like, what material results are going to come from this if we continue this conversation and basically what that means is that we're looking for you know real lasting transformative change of the institution that is notre dame to redistribute resources and ways of being and methods and practices on campus to better include indigenous folk black folk queer folk etc and make decolonization not a metaphor, as Fianna was talking about in a practice and a practice that is impactful in a very real sense. So these conversations that we're starting, it's been interesting just because, as we mentioned, it's a web platform. And so kind of balancing and understanding that what we're talking about is a very long journey. And trying to find a way to get through that as swiftly as possible while also being very intentional about the conversations we're having. And so we're very conscientious of the fact that we're housed in an academic institution. So this process of decolonization is a learning process for a lot of people here. And it should be, you know, it should be an opportunity to teach and learn in turn from people and grow together as a community as we're seeking alternative ways of being and alternative practices. And so that's been basically the big goal that we've been looking towards. And the way we structured the project right now, especially in COVID times, has been to be as malleable and flexible, but also strong and sustainable enough that we can pass this project along to other people and future students, and they can pick it up and utilize it and keep these conversations, these causes alive. As Fiona mentioned, we have a web, pretty much hub right now that is our kind of main contribution overall. And it's a website that it contains what we call stories or contributions kind of in turn, which as Fiona touched on can vary from, you know, traditional essay formats to video contributions, panel discussions, other things as well. We're really trying to open up our idea of what a scholarly contribution can be and a contribution that is rigorous and robust. So we have a collection of those that we've published through this website. And the way that we display them is actually through this really great tech. It's this platform called MapMe, which allows users to create interactive maps where you can pin stories or links to various geographic points. And so we've created what we call a story map, where we have pinned each of the contributions we received over the past year to specific geographic locations that are pertinent to the content of that contribution. And this is a way of reinforcing this idea of material reparations, specifically, in line with the land back movement which is a very strong indigenous rights movement discussing reparations as returning the land to the first stewards of said land and so by pinning the stories and the conversations we've initiated to points on campus we're encouraging students to look at the very places they're occupying in a more critical sense and a more in-depth and retrospective stance and really question okay like what does my place here mean what am i doing like how am i contributing to the history that's here or what are some of the histories that i haven't considered about the places that i'm occupying and so we've used that map to rethink how to present information in a way that causes a more aesthetic and introspective reflection.
0: Thank you, Liam. I must say, as a South African, it's exciting to see this conversation happening on campus. I come from a country where, as you all know, we had a long period of brutal reign under the white minority regime, under the system of apartheid. And through our negotiated settlement and process of reconciliation, we ended up leaving intact many of the symbols and statues and monuments to apartheid and to minority leaders, many of whom were uh, warlords. And they sit very uneasily in our country alongside the symbols of the new reconciled South Africa. But for the majority of the population, which is Black in South Africa, these symbols of the past are hateful. And they are not a symbol of reconciliation. And we've had a sustained, engaged, agitated debate on whether these symbols should be retained, and if they should, how they should be reinterpreted. So exciting to see this now happening at Notre Dame. Josie, you interviewed Madeleine. We saw a member of the Perkagan band. So tell us about the central messages that you received from that, our viewers can watch for themselves, the interview in the video, but just give us a kind of teaser. And I'm also interested in hearing what you learned from that experience.
3: Madeline gave a lot of messages, the video, throughout the story. I think some of her main messages were just her urging people to face the uncomfortable, horrific truth of genocide against indigenous communities that happened historically that still happens today. A lot of her concerns were around sort of deconstructing historical stereotypes, absolving of like state-based inaccuracies in social studies. Also a lot of learning about how the land is diverse and there's so many different native cultures in which one occupies the importance of understanding the diversity of indigenous people and native people and also she talked about issues of returning the land and that's what she what her perspective is today is the land needs to be returned and so i think you know one of the biggest things that i learned was as a Notre Dame student, how you know indifferent I was to these issues before, how unexposed I was to the narratives, the stories, the perspectives of the Pokagon band members who once lived on, or you know, once occupied Notre Dame's land. And I think I just learned how important that was to hear Indigenous stories and and voices and learn more about the truth behind Notre Dame's history and the truth behind the history of the land I occupy as a Notre Dame student, the history of the land I occupy as being from St. Paul, Minnesota. And I think I just learned that I'm gonna to try to keep myself accountable to hearing Native voices around me and being you know, an accomplice rather than an ally, which is a big thing that this project focuses on that I really appreciate as a Peace Studies major that I've, I've learned a lot on. So, yeah, I think that was the gist of what Madeline taught me
0: what motivated you to do the interview in the first place?
3: Yeah, so I took Professor Kay's class visualizing global change. And I was originally interested in Indigenous issues on campus after I transferred to Notre Dame my sophomore year, and I took the Introduction to Peace Studies class and learned about Notre Dame's true history. And Professor Kay sort of guided me to be interested in the 2020 Mishawaka Central Park Columbus statue protest. And Madeline was actually one of the main organizers for those protests. So I reached out to her about sort of having a conversation about her involvement with those protests. And then the conversation just evolved into more and created this video.
0: Great. Thank you for that. I turn to Jack. Jack, you wrote a fantastic piece on how you envisage the university's relationship with the Bacchagan, and you're making strong recommendations in that regard. So feel free to comment on how you see the relationship currently and historically, but also what you think should be done going forward?
4: Yeah, thank you so much. And I kind of wanted to start by shouting out the Native American Student Association of Notre Dame (NASAN), which is a very small organization on campus. There's not a lot of Native students, and I would encourage anyone like listening or people in here who like actually want to get involved with Native issues to like go to meetings with the group and show solidarity with them. And especially, we've had a lot of students graduate recently. And so the group isn't as big as it used to be. But one of the things that I also wanted to emphasize as well on like the Columbus murals, which were a big thing in the past couple of years and with issues like this is there's a difference, especially in history about remembering history and revering it. That was one of the issues that came up with the murals itself. And when it comes up with talking about native history on campus as well. And so a lot of the recommendations that I had put forward were through conversation with Native students on campus. So these are Pokagon members and with Pokagon members off campus as well, who were saying that this is like what they wanted. And the main thing that the Pokagon said that they wanted from the university, is they said that they were promised free education originally. And the university disputes this. And it's a difference between like an oral tradition versus like a written agreement. And that's one thing that's in contention from the university and tribes right now. Other things that I called for were just Notre Dame involving Native students in decision-making, for example, and the Pokagan people around them as well. More scholarships for Native students, more recruitment of Native students, and a university-backed powwow, Pokagan flag flown over the stadium and like a Native center. And there has been some effort by the university to put forward some of these issues they've attempted to hire new native faculty there's only one native professor on campus right now and it's a visiting professor and i think there's only one pokagan member now who goes to the university as well we just had one graduate and i would say the relationship from what i've talked to with other pokagan members right now is brief annually they still give out baskets to the pokagan but this seems to be a pretty limited relationship when this is the only thing that really happens between the two entities. And one of the things that I want is through my piece was to remind students, faculty, anyone reading that the history of Notre Dame is directly intertwined with the history of the Pottawatomi. And the reason Notre Dame was founded in South Bend was directly responsible or directly related to the Potawatomi who invited Catholic priests down in the early 19th century. And so I remember Jules Downing and Lauren Klein, who also wrote an accomplice, had a good piece asking students on campus what they knew of Potawatomi history. And these are students who like were peace studies or interested in native affairs in general. And a lot of them had very limited knowledge. And I would imagine the rest of the campus would have even less knowledge of native happenings around the area. And so the goal of my piece was to remind people The extent of the history Notre Dame has with its native population and to call on them to remember it now and to involve native people in decision-making today have involved naysan involved the old members of naysan who still live around the area involved the pokagan people involved the potawatomi people as a whole in decision making because i think Notre Dame has so much to gain from this relationship and a lot of their early relationship with the potawatomi was rather positive a lot of the missionaries here originally defended Potawatomi's right to stay here when a lot were being removed at the time. And so I think Notre Dame has a lot to celebrate here, and I think they should.
0: So Jack, let me ask you a question then. Providing free education and being proactive about it is not difficult and it's not expensive. I mean, for a university that is as richly endowed as Notre Dame, this is not a big ask. It's not a big challenge. I mean, there are some demands that the Pekagan might make that are more difficult to meet. But this is not a difficult one. So what is the problem here? Is the problem continued racism, institutionalized racism, and suppression of indigenous people and voices? Is the problem that it, recognizing the past means recognizing our sins? And that that is just too painful or runs too counter to self-identity. Or what's your explanation?
4: So, well, I think this is like the million-dollar question. (laughs) And from my own experience talking to university officials and different people in the administration to brief interactions, my fear is that they think that in acknowledging certain history that maybe don't shed as good of a light on the university, in acknowledging that they are admitting to like doing something wrong like it seems like they're trying to get ahead of a potentially bad pr thing when in reality i think the course that they're taking is much worse pr than acknowledging anything that would have to do with native people on campus the university is taking some steps beyond the free education to try and be more inclusive i know they're starting like a tribal colleges initiative as well I mean, I think there's one Pokegan on campus right now, if I'm not mistaken. That would not be too expensive to pay for them. It's not on, lost on the university, too, that a lot of people think that the Pokegan go here for free. And that's because a lot of them fall under, like, financial aid that Notre Dame would pay them anyway. But a number of Pokegan who have been here in the past have not been given free education. And so my belief is that the university doesn't want to – maybe they have a fear of – in acknowledging it, they're acknowledging like an accusation, for instance, of racism or institutionalized racism. And so that's why I was very deliberate in my piece to say like, this is not like an accusation against the university or its administration. It's just calling for like a relationship renewed. And I think that institutions in general, not just Notre Dame are wary of giving in easily to demands that maybe shed them in a bad light. And so, i think it's something that's also on principle at this point they've been denying it for so long that they would have to say like oh wait why were we denying it for so long because they're saying that the oral tradition of the potawatomi isn't enough for them whenever i've asked about it they said we need there's no written record and so if they did acknowledge that they could do this which they could easily they would have to say oh we didn't do it for so long and then they'd have to say why so i think it's just easier to address other claims which are good and then Not have to admit that they were making a mistake in in some people's minds when not giving free education. At least that's my view.
0: That's a great response. Thank you. Creative, sophisticated, politically sophisticated response. You know, as a South African and as a mediator, having mediated in many parts of the world, I'm very resistant to the idea that you can, whether through mediation or not, whether you can broker healing and reconciliation between divided communities or between groups that have been in conflict with each other, without acknowledging harm done. So the romantic or sentimental idea that we can kind of elide from ignoring the past or suppressing the past to being at peace with each other is an illusion that healing requires an acknowledgement, a recognition of harm done and that is is necessarily painful, because even if the current generation are not oppressors, we are beneficiaries of oppression. And that's an ugly truth that we have to stare in the face if we want to make progress in the future. So Liam, we are talking about suppression of the past and remembrance of the past and symbols. So that takes me to the article that you wrote for accomplice on the Compass murals, covered or not covered, uncovered by you, in your hands
2: yes so i wrote a brief essay on the columbus murals but more specifically the public response to the murals and the process that the university has undertaken over the past few years of covering them up and i kind of approach it from this mix of like art history slash marxist and i guess i don't know like post-colonial critique if you will and so Initially, this essay was actually really hard for me to write because as an art historian, I was like, oh, I'm going to start with the object. I'm going to talk about the object. And I wrote eight pages about these murals, the uncovered versions, if you will. And then I kind of realized like, wow, I'm really losing focus here. Like I shouldn't be talking about the paintings. The issue at hand isn't necessarily paintings because I think a lot of people can get behind the fact that there are at least problematic elements to them if they can't admit kind of the open racism of their history. And so then I kind of shifted focus to talking about the committees that were formed to address the murals and how strongly the student body has been advocating for their removal. I mean, you can go back into the, I believe, the 1990s and find observer articles about students who are protesting and saying the murals should be taken down. Nicole Hannah-Jones of the 1619 Project actually wrote an essay in which she supports the murals being taken down. When she was a student here. And so I kind of trace this lineage of student activism, much of it led by Naysan, which Jack has mentioned, and then talk about the institutional response, which was to create in 2019, an advisory committee for the Office of the President that would put forward a report on the murals and recommendations going forward. And my main critique of this process is that the committee that they formed was a predominantly white committee so according to a few sources that i had there was i believe only one native american student representative on the committee and then several representatives of catholic fraternal organizations the knights of columbus for example and advisors within administration who are white. And so it created a, basically what I conclude is that this committee just recreated the same sort of othering of indigenous voices and subalterning, if you will, of indigenous voices, where this, you know, one student was expected to speak for all Indigenous students on campus. And that's kind of an impossible task to give them, being a single person with a singular experience. And so then the recommendations of this committee not even looking at them yet, you can expect that they are going to be coming from a perspective that may not be as critical or balanced or nuanced as it should be for such a complex issue. And then I turn, of course, to the actual recommendations of the committee. And that's where you start to see some of this sort of ahistorical or tailoring of history to kind of benefit. The institution, for example, they, in the report very early on, kind of parse out this distinction between colonization and the violence of colonization and evangelization, which a lot of historians of colonial Latin America and America will say immediately, you know, evangelization was a very colonial and violent process. And so to try and distinguish that in this opening of a report is already setting up this problematic dynamic in which You're kind of absolving religious causes of any violence that was wrought on their behalf. And the solution they come up with ultimately is this covering process which we see today was implemented by the university of these designed tapestries, pseudo tapestries, they're printed canvases of what's meant to be this sort of melding of Catholic and indigenous imagery. But the process in which they went about it, they hired this predominantly white art firm and had a white designer do this. And so you kind of end up with this very vague, sort of, I guess for lack of a better term, basic allusions to indigenous creation myths, which aren't necessarily tailored to any local perspective. And it then creates these tapestries that basically just cover up the embarrassing parts without responding or acknowledging that there was any wrongdoing there. And in fact, furthers the problematic relationship of predominantly white voices acting and preemptively uh, circumventing any response that could perceive them as problematic or having done wrong in the past. And so I argued that a more meaningful way to engage these um, murals would have been to commission local indigenous artists, cede the space to naysand for them to commission artists or do something there with the murals themselves, whether it's a symbolic gesture of removal or something of that nature. And really work and follow the lead of local indigenous folk and activists and students within the cause who have been working for this for so long um, and listen to what they need and potentially produce some really beautiful work that gets installed in response to these murals i i use as a case study a piece from my other alma mater university of oregon the two-spirit artist Damien Dinayazi of the nalihi dine did a piece to respond to the art museum there, which has this, it's fairly famous facade in the area of this. It's a very weird style that's supposed to mix like East and West into one, which of course is a a problematic divide. And so, Dinyazi, they have created this piece that they installed in a temporary exhibition on the front of the building. That's kind of responding to this idea of, you know, when you take East and West, you're really erasing Indigenous voices in that history a lot of the time. And so they put their poem, which is this very radical call for dismantling colonial institutions in the United States, up on the facade, kind of giving this voice to Indigenous history and reminding people of the absence of the supposedly very progressive, globalized artistic style and so then i use that piece and say okay well uh, if they were able to do something like this and you know engage this conversation in a very public way what's stopping the university of notre dame from commissioning art that does this that responds to the racism in these murals in a very intentional way that doesn't just cover up something without having any opportunity to acknowledge to apologize to repair that relationship and yeah that's a very long-winded Summary of what I talk about in the very complex workings of talking about racist art. Oh.
0: Liam, thank you. I mean,
2: it would be interesting for
0: faculty, staff, and students to walk past those covered murals now and to give an assessment of what the silence communicates. Yeah. Uh, because it's still speaking quite loudly, even though, exactly. it, even though it's covered up.
2: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it does to cover up something that has generated so much public outcry and has been such a focus of conversation and then kind of cover it up with this very straightforward neutralized kind of middle ground compromise. Yeah, it's neutering the conversation and really preventing it from going forward and turning into something productive because it requires the institution to be vulnerable and acknowledge something that in the past may have been not so great that they did. And then the other interesting thing I want to mention as well is that these coverings aren't even permanent. So they've developed kind of this very vague protocol where if a professor uh, wants them uncovered for classwork of some kind, the building maintenance will remove the coverings. And so there have been, you know, stints, periods of time for, you know, there was one time, I believe, over winter that for, you know, a period of several days up to almost a week, they were uncovered and like there's no you know announcement or things of that nature so it creates kind of this really and there were students who were upset about that because again you know now we've created this very weird scenario where you know are we going to announce every time we're uncovering them and then create again all this buzz or are we just going to kind of do it in the dead of night and quietly let the professors look at things and you know this solution which was supposedly supposed to help things move forward is kind of mired us even further into semantics and conversations that aren't aren't productive and aren't helping anything.
0: Okay. Thank you, Liam. I want to turn to the name accomplice, the name of the project. So direct this initially to Fiona, and then to invite Jack to come into the conversation. I was not familiar with the political concept accomplice. I grew up in a different political tradition and i really i'm asking a question about how different groups with different identities engage in struggle and who leads struggle in south africa this was not an overly complicated question in the anti apartheid movement because the majority of oppressed people were black and whites joined the struggle a tiny percentage of the white population joined the struggle in full recognition that the leader, our leadership was black, and there was no question about it. So we were, as students, and then in civic organizations and trade unions, part of a broad internal anti-apartheid movement, located in the unions and civic organizations, and in turn part of a broader liberation movement, the African National Congress. We were committed to non-racialism, by which we meant race was not a critical factor dividing us, but that we recognized African leadership, Black leadership. And so for whites who were part of the struggle and who considered themselves comrades, their place in the hierarchy, so to speak, in the political arrangements was unambiguous. That's more complicated when in this country, it's more complicated when oppressed people are minority groups. And the challenge then of who's speaking for whom and who's leading and who's following and what that relationship entails is a more complicated and sensitive one. So with that as a non-US perspective, I invite Fiana to say something about accomplice, why you chose the name, but also how you see the politics that I'm talking about.
1: Absolutely. So a little bit of a background on me. I prior to attending the University of Notre Dame was a community organizer across the United States for several years. So the way that I was politically raised that are most relevant to these conversations is primarily from the grassroots up. And in the grassroots organizing spaces across the US and in particularly in the Midwest, we kind of operationalize. I guess what you could call a trifecta of power, that being Black, Indigenous, and at that time, Arab power, precisely in recognition of the struggle for justice in Palestine. And in my political upbringing, I As a Bangladeshi Muslim American myself, had a really difficult time navigating these identity politics because I didn't necessarily find a place or a space for me in that trifecta of liberatory power. And I came across some really powerful pieces by contemporary Black feminist scholars like Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks, and Angela Davis, who all speak extensively about both the liberatory promise and yet also the oppressive powers of identity politics. That if we are not critical with the way that we assume identity, we may find ourselves replicating the very systems of oppression that we are trying to fight against. And that was really essential for me to establish what my place is and what my role is in Yeah, tearing these systems down. So the term accomplice specifically comes from a magazine or a zine, as we like to call it in the grassroots spaces, which is essentially it's a platform that kind of serves as like a booklet that's supposed to be easily accessible, easily distributed. Very like niche, radical grassroots organizers have maybe 20 zines ready at hand to print out and distribute in any protest. So this particular zine published by the Indigenous Action Media called Accomplices, Not Allies, Abolishing the Ally Industrial Complex, an Indigenous Perspective, basically defines accomplices as those who don't just have our, quote, indigenous backs, but they are at our side or in their own spaces confronting and unsettling colonialism. So Black and queer activist networks since 2014 have largely adopted this term of accomplice as a role Quite distinct from being an ally, recognizing that there is some criticism that the term may be further framing oppressed people as criminal, but we recognize that in the unjust society at hand, the work of accomplices are necessarily transgressive, revolutionary, and disturbing of the peace. For me, in responding to your question of who leads the struggle, I think it is no longer as easy as identifying a particular identity in terms of a racial identity because even the theory of coloniality and decolonization has unsettled race and racism in the first place. We cannot be so certain that even folks of ourselves, right, like for me, Asian Americans, we are a very complicated community, population, racial and political identity, We uphold a wide spectrum of political perspectives, and I don't necessarily assume that the next Asian-American, whatever that even means, is going to be my comrade. You can never assume political alignment from race. I think something that I'm thinking about or was thinking about also when we first started Accomplice, I began to be immersed in the grassroots spaces in South Bend. And first of all, it was very, very difficult. It's clear that there's a lot of burnout in this community. And I think one of the reasons why is because really the troubles at hand are quite contentious and complicated. And anybody who wants to organize in this community has to hold space for a lot of deep history, a lot of deep issues. So, for example, I regularly attended a what's now called the Working Group for Reparations in South Bend. And one of the first meetings and conversations that we had were reparations for whom and from whom. And I left the first couple meetings feeling a bit uneasy because some of the conversations I don't know, made me question a lot. So for example, a conversation that we had was about the tension that even the Black community in South Bend has with the Pokagon community and wondering what place the Black community has in this larger conversation of decoloniality and whether or not reparations, if we try to bring in the Indigenous folks, the Indigenous folks, and promote reparations for Indigenous groups then what are Black people owed? What are Black folks in South Bend owed? And to the point that eventually the committee, and again, because I am not, first and foremost, the one who leads this struggle, particularly. I see myself as an accomplice. I facilitate back in my own spaces and promote and provide resources as I have at hand. But The South Bend community who convened this committee talked about how maybe for the time being, we need to focus on reparations for the Black community first and foremost. And I think I'm still contending with that. It is complex, and it's obviously not my place to redefine and redetermine their agenda for this working group, but it is something that that I am contending with. And I think this question of who leads the struggle and what liberation looks like is still quite contentious, and we need to have further conversation about it. But at least redefining our places as accomplices and not allies promotes more opportunity and opens up more space for the necessary conversations to have.
0: Thank you, Fiona. Jack, your response to my question, your response to Fiana's comments. As I said before we went into the recording mode, I encourage the panelists to not only agree with each other, but also disagree. So you're welcome to disagree with me, Fianna, with anything that's been said or agree as you see fit.
4: I would, say, I would say that NASEN does have a strong voice on campus. It's just a limited voice, so small. But I do believe that they are, at least in my four years here, I've been very committed to achieving change. And one, one of the issues, though, that comes up is that NASEN was originally founded to address the Columbus Spirals, for example. And so figuring out what to do beyond that, like it's not like either we pack it up and go home and that's like the end of our conversation about it. But to your point, if if you're honest, I would say that the conversation has to be led by native students. And just because Notre Dame doesn't have a lot of native students doesn't mean that there's nothing that we can do then. And I also want to acknowledge like, I am not from a reservation, I'm a white student and me being able to talk about being native is coming from like a point of very high privilege cause I can like hide behind being very white. And so there's like native students on campus who don't get to do that. And I believe that they're the ones who are being impacted whenever they're the ones walking through the visitor center and they sell the murals or going through Moreau and having like one or two sentences about the Pottawatomie being mentioned in their history of Notre Dame. They're the ones who are being directly impacted by a lack of a conversation and the stereotypes that come out of that lack of involvement or recognition from campus. And so I believe that any further steps have to be led by native students. And to Fiona's point as well, even though they might have like different political viewpoints, I don't think that discredits the, I don't think you're saying that, but I think that they also, even if maybe they're like conservative native students or very progressive native students, they would have similar experiences on campus in terms of race and racism maybe they interpret it differently but it's it, it's not like it only impacts a certain group of political affiliated people and so i do believe though that it is extremely complicated nuance when we're talking about reparations and what that means and who it comes from and also bringing up other minority voices on campus because it's not like native voices are the only things that aren't being talked about very much and so the main thing that i would want to remind people to is and i've said this a lot but just involve native voices because if we were having convenings just talking about what we can do for them and not talking to them at all which i mean we all have been in conversation with native students in NASAND, we would be treating them just as victims which in itself is it seemed pretty colonizing itself and uh looking down upon them as just victims when in reality Like when the Potawatomi were here, when Notre Dame came, they were like one of the largest tribes in the area. They had mastered horticulture. Like, it's not like when Soren and Baden came, it was nothing was here, for example. And so acknowledging that history and acknowledging that those people are still here today, I think is the best way to move forward, especially leading the conversation because they're the ones who have experienced this firsthand. And a lot of times as Notre Dame students, we're here very briefly for only a couple of years. It will do us good to listen to people who've been here their entire lives and their parents and their grandparents, their ancestors' entire lives. Great. Jack, thanks for the response.
0: In the, in the few minutes remaining, I want to turn our attention to the future. What do we want Accomplice to do? So I'm going to do a round the table, starting with Josie. Just a couple of ideas from each of you on what you think Accomplice could or should be doing in the future.
3: Yeah, I think I'm, I'm really excited to see what Accomplice does in the future, and I hope that it can continue to amplify not only just the voices of Notre Dame, but the voices of like, the broader community. And like, I think it's important for also Notre Dame students to engage with this content. I hope that it could be incorporated into you know, the first year class at Notre Dame, things like that, just to hear the voices that are not often as amplified as they should be on campus. And I think also it's important for students at Notre Dame to realize their own, going back to like a peace studies concept, like Paulo Freire's like critical consciousness, like understand your own position of like privilege and power at Notre Dame and how your activism can kind of be led by these oppressed voices and the idea that not to be indifferent to these issues and that we belong to each other as much as we try to. So I think that There's a lot for Notre Dame students to learn from this project and I hope that it can continue to break down that indifference towards these issues and towards these voices that are so important to be heard.
2: I like that, thank you. Liam? Yeah, many things. Uh, Like I said at the beginning, I want to see material results from this. I want to see changes on campus that are physical and literal. So one of the things that I really hope accomplice can help facilitate is you know the establishment of an autonomous indigenous cultural center, Pokagon Cultural Center, specifically on campus, and you know that physical space for students to engage local indigenous history. I want to see more relationships with the South Bend community, kind of touching on what we've been talking about this whole time, understanding that the students here. Are leaders in the struggle. Every position in the quest for liberation is a position of leadership, in my opinion. But that doesn't mean that everybody's, you know, in charge of things per se. Some of those leadership positions are leading through listening, some of those positions are leading through organizing, some of those positions are leading through direct action. So, understanding that every position, your position, if you are going to engage this as an accomplice, is to lead in the struggle alongside your fellow accomplices which is the thing that you know distinguishes accomplices from allies you know allies support the struggle but may not understand that their lives are directly impacted by it and accomplices say like nope i'm just as involved in this as you are it's impacting me differently but it's impacting me nonetheless and so i have you know a duty and obligation to get involved so i want more students to start thinking like that because i think that's going to bring about a lot of the changes these student groups local activists local groups have been calling for for years and yeah i want to see a much more intentional occupation of space of land by notre dame you know i've grown up in south bend my whole life and so i've seen a lot of the gentrification and the stratification that development around campus by campus by the university has caused in the community and the damage that that rings on South Bend and the greater local community. And so I want to see that change as well and see Notre Dame be a lot more intentional about these relationships, as Jack was talking about and so eloquently writes about, you know, renewing relationships that once were there that were really strong and very much mutually caring and considerate. And I think a lot of the changes we're hoping for will come if we just focus on that. Thank you, Liam. Jack.
4: Yeah, I wanna echo some of these, Liam and Josie's points, I think they're all really good. One other thing that I would love to see is like a compass potentially sponsoring like a mini conference or thing where students who maybe are less familiar would be able to attend. And we could invite members of the local native community to talk about it on campus. Cause I feel like oftentimes we're in our own silos where some peace studies conferences or poli side conferences will attract like the exact same people who like already agree with those views or it's kind of just talking to the same people about the same issues i think if we're able to find a way to encourage the university the administration native community and people on campus to get involved with these questions through like a conference or like tabling sessions or stuff like that i think that would be great because one of the things that we need to continue to do is raise this awareness on campus i'm not under the impression that every student at Notre Dame read my essay or any of our essays. So I I would want to see more efforts to extend this message to the rest of the campus community who are maybe not looking for these questions or answers.
0: Great. So we we are saying that we want to both, we want to provide awareness and engagement to students who are interested, but also those who are not yet interested, that we, we need to get their attention. Um, if they're walking around oblivious on campus to the history of that campus. Fiona.
1: Makes me nervous I get the last word. Um, I I think- I'll
0: claim the last (laughs) word.
1: (laughs) I think perfectly my vision ties into exactly what Jack just pointed out. I think one of my organizers like to call like self-stake or self-interest in starting this project is recognizing the quite atomized nature of student organizing on campus. Again, my grassroots organizing work is in the tradition of student power and student movement work. So I was really concerned that a lot of conversations that are necessary are happening, but they're just not happening with each other. And I hope that, and what my vision for accomplice really is, is that this not only provides a framework for engaging in a critical way, but also that it brings many different perspectives and peoples with different backgrounds and technologies, whether that's knowledge base, whether that's resources at hand, et cetera, come together and work together towards uh, liberalization. (laughs) I think Again, going back to centering material transformation, I hope that students will use this as a formal platform and maybe even arrange for meetings with administrators and say, hey, look, this is a rigorous, critical piece that we need you to engage with as an institution. I hope that this inspires students to work together and come together. And I'd love to talk about what a future conference might look like, Jack. Yeah, I think for me, the Future is now. I think the opportunities and openings of the future that we dream of are happening right now. And we need students to recognize that and come together and work together.
0: Great. Thank you, Piana. I'm claiming the last word only because I happen to be convening this podcast. Accomplice is a student led and student owned project. And I encourage students who are watching this to get involved. This is your project. This is not. My project, it's not the university's project, it's not the mediation program's project, we are supporting a student project. From the perspective of the mediation program, our answer to the question, what reparations and for whom is a process oriented answer. In other words, we would argue strongly that it's through sound dialogue and problem-solving and collaboration with power, with potential power, with a host of communities and leaders. It's through that process of genuine constructive engagement, that we generate the answers we want, the answers that we can all live with. So as a mediation program, we would not say this is what reparations should or shouldn't look like another day. And what we would say strongly, and enthusiastically, is we need to have a discussion about this. We can't keep postponing it. It's not going away. It's never going to go away. We need to have a conversation about this and the conversation needs to be respectful. It may be difficult and that's fine. It may be painful and that's fine, but we have to have the conversation. And if we do that conversation well, we will yield answers that are meaningful, that are satisfactory and that enrich all of us, that are not win-lose outcomes. So that's the commitment and orientation of the mediation program. I want to thank our panelists very much for your energy, positive energy and contributions. I want to give you the website address, it's sitesndedu backslash accomplice-project. Liam, is there a simpler way, can you just like help me out here, just a simpler way for students to find it than this rattling through the address?
2: Yeah. So you can type that into your Google search bar if you want, or we have an Instagram page that's at accomplice.nd and the link to the accomplice project is in our bio there. So you can access it a little more directly through that.
0: Appreciate that. Good.
2: Thanks all very much. Look forward to further engagement down the line.
0: We're done for today. Thanks Laurie.
2: Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the CrocCast, peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Kroc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.